Hi, I'm Margie Haber. I've been an acting coach for 30 years, helping actors find their personal power and learn to create. Let's face it, all of us need to let go of control, get rid of the straitjacket we call our comfort zone, and remove the walls that prevent us from being vulnerable. It's all about hope. So let's begin this journey together and give ourselves permission to fuck your comfort zone. Everybody who's listening right now, I've got to say something to you. I cannot believe I am sitting in Zoom world across from a man I have known for how many decades? At least four. I I think we're going on five. I think we're that long. That's how long it's been. (laughs) It's crazy. It's just the longest time. It's like having a blind date with an old friend. Yes, everybody. So people don't, I'm, at least I should tell everybody who you are, the extraordinary, and I do mean you're extraordinary, John Levy, who I'm going to say all the things I need to say about you, and then we'll do it quickly, because I'm so honored to have you as a guest today. I truly am. So here's my quick intro of this wonderful man who I've known 100 years. I doubled it. Uh, you, uh, in case people don't know you, which they all should, I can't imagine someone not knowing John Levy. It's like not someone not knowing Margie Haber. That's how long we've known each other. The world should know us, right? John is a four-time Emmy award-winning casting director for such iconic shows as China Beach, ER, The West Wing, Shameless, and Animal Kingdom, and a five-time winner award of the Casting Society Arteos Award and the recipient, which is a phenomenal thing, of the prestigious Hoyt Bauer Award given for excellence in casting. And now, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and anybody else who's listening, he has a baby, a new baby. And I believe it is your new book called Right for the Role. Yahoo! Are you going to show me my... <laughs> tell, everybody, tell everybody what you're looking at, what we're looking at here. This is the backwards cover of Margie's new book, Fuck Your Comfort Zone. and. Um, we decided, or Margie suggested, that um, uh, I would show you hers if she would show you mine. Oh, those are very interesting conversations. It's crazy. And notice the colors are very similar. We're like, you know? Exactly. I noticed that, too, that we both went for sort of um, arresting visual images and that they also... um, They're multifaceted. I mean, mine has an element of 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 uh, puzzle solving to it, which uh, is part of what casting is all all about, um, and, and uh, I like it very much. Yours is also terrific, and of course, the controversial use of that word. Yeah, well, fuck it. That's what I always say, you know. Well, it, this is an unusual uh, interview for me, or I should say, conversation, because usually I don't spend an entire weekend reading the book. I, I actually read it in Kindle and then I bought this. So it looks like I haven't read it because I read the whole thing in Kindle. But uh, I've got to say, I have so many questions and so many comments about the book and so many thoughts about it. And uh, so I have you know, quite a lot of things I want to ask and, and comments. So I'm going to give, give us some time to catch up a little bit. First of all, how long has it been since I've seen you? Well, I, I uh, the last time I saw you, I came to your studio on La Cienega. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I moved many, 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 many years ago, 
to do a workshop, maybe, I don't know whether it was kids or teenagers or, or adults. I don't remember exactly, but I just remember that every time you and I have interacted, we have rediscovered and rediscovered how much we have in common, ah. despite how much we have uh, not in common. It's so amazing how I'm gonna after reading your book, uh, how much we have in common is beyond me, and things you don't even know about that I'm going to get into that you and I are in common. But didn't I see 2008 when we did when I did that Hollywood Atlanta? Didn't you come with me to Atlanta? Oh my God! Uh, was that Neil Bags thing? Yeah, that's my thing. And then I I got Neil involved, and I got yes, I got Glenn involved. Yes, it was. Yes, I was I was there in Atlanta. I know. And, and yeah, I remember the 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 Vietnamese American girl who won the prize. So this is the story with it. So for those people that don't know, in two thousand eight, I put together uh, a. It was a financially a complete loss, but um, it was a wonderful opportunity to meet people. I mean, yeah, it cost me so much money, but I, I just loved the experience because it was really something that they don't do now. We had true teachers that came and and A plus casting directors and people in the industry. And the woman, the girl you're talking about is Madeline Horcher, who ended up at 12 years old, winning the award, came and stayed with me and then lived with me with her parents for a year. I don't know if you know <laughs> that. <laughs> your, your level of generosity surpasses mine. By uh, <laughs> uh, I can't even see how far you are in front of me. I'm mental generosity. with it. I'm mental with it. So what happened, Madeline ended up uh, staying. I got her uh, William Morris and uh, as an agent, all that stuff. And to make a long story short, she's worked a lot. She's a fantastic actress fantastic she's beautiful she's in her i guess her mid 20 26 she's in my class now she's back in my class and she's on oh big sky right now wow how fantastic so, yeah so I, it turned remember, out to be i remember uh that she had so much uh charisma a word we learned when john kennedy ran yes. for president in the early 60s <laughs> absolutely and and he certainly had that and you know uh it's it interests me because when I think about you and our lives together, because we we grew up in the '60s, we're from the '60s. We're Absolutely. practically the same age. I'm a little older than you, but practically the same same age. And there's a lot to be said from what life was like then and the business, how it's changed. And oh my God, there's so much we've gone through. So let's just start with you beginning and telling us. I'm going to talk all about your shows because I have lots of questions to ask you about this stuff that comes from your book, really. Um, but I'd love to hear what fire away, fire away, get ready. <laughs> I'd love to hear, uh, about just the beginnings for you, how you, you know, where you come from and stuff like that. Sure. Well, you know, I, I grew up in, a, a, a intellectual, uh, New York city, uh, household, uh, uh, that was, uh, Unified in some ways and fractured in so many others. Uh, my parents divorced when I was 14. Um, my family divided directly in half. My brother and my father were one team and my mom and I were the other. Yeah. Um, and my mom and I had an enormously strong connection right from the beginning. Uh, she used to tell a story that the OB who uh, delivered me, who she went to see, she, 
maybe a, a couple of days after the birth, said to her, this one will take care of you. And um, it turned out to be true. Uh, she moved across the street from me in the last three years of her life in a house that I was able to buy for her uh, with a bonus that I got from John Wells, Steven Spielberg, and Michael Crichton for the profits on ER. And her and her name was Sylvia Frank, a very sensitive soul with a combination of power and vulnerability. And uh, I, I, can't, I have a, a conversation I want to talk to you about your mother, but continue. Well, I just wanted to say that in, she set me up for my life and my career in so yeah. many ways. Um, but I have dealt with very strong, powerful women who combine that strength and power with uh, a level of vulnerability that they spend most of their time trying to hide. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, throughout my career, Barbara Clayman, Marcia Kleinman, Phyllis Huffman. Yep. Not to mention agents and, uh, you know, that I have uh, interacted with, uh, uh, like Susan Smith and, yep. uh, you know, Lori Bartlett. I know all of these. And what cracks me up is I know because we're from the same time. I remember yeah. Barbara Clayman scared me. I remember Barbara. <laughs> well, and, yes. for good, and for good reason. <laughs> well, she, she was a scary woman. Well, I mean. Those were the days. They were really. They were those women were something else. The one woman that influenced my life, who was not scary, uh, who changed a lot of my life, who I met in acting class, was Sherry Lansing. Uh huh. She's a beautiful soul. She was a beautiful soul. Is she the one who said life is about returning phone calls? And the irony of you saying that is the first book I wrote, How to Get the Part Without Falling Apart, right? I had decided, you know, I knew her for years. We went to school, to acting class together. We weren't friends, but we'd ever bump into each other. She always said hi. So I call her up to ask her if she would to think, well, maybe she'll write something for my book. And I leave a message and saying, uh, you know, please tell. I mean, it was chutzpah because in case people don't know who Sherry Lansing uh, is or what, I mean, still is alive, but was. Uh, she was the president of 20th Century Fox and also of Paramount. And she was at Paramount at the time. And I would I, I just left a message thinking, this is a joke. I'll leave a message and say, listen, Margie Haber called. When she gets a chance, call me. At the end of the day, I get a call. Margie? I said, yeah, who's this? This, this is Sherry. Sherry who? I could not believe. No secretary. <laughs> nothing. Sherry. Sherry Lansing. Oh, uh, Sherry, uh, how are you? I'm good. Margie, I am so proud of you for writing this book. And that's the kind of person she was. Continue. You know, uh, among the many uh, rewards that I've gotten from writing my book is that I sent out emails to actors, writers, directors, uh, producers that I'd worked with over the 38 or so years that my book encompasses. And I, I, I said to them, hey, would you, you know, I've done this audacious thing. I've written a professional memoir. How would you feel? Would you feel comfortable about writing a few sentences? about your uh, experience with me uh, as a casting director. And I expected maybe a 10% response. Yeah. I got a, about a 95% response. And, and there's a chapter at the end of the book yeah. that's called Other People's Memories. 
And my dear friend, Carol Flint, a writer, producer on many of the shows I worked on, she wrote back and said, is there really a book genre? Or are you just collecting accolades? <laughs> well, I, I read them all. And listen, you know, you are very special because uh, there are a lot of casting directors that I've known over the 20 billion years I've been alive. I've been in the business 50 years, and I think you have too. Uh, it's a long time, but there are the casting directors that care about actors, they care about the products, they're invested, and they're casting directors that um, do their job. And you're a casting director has always been someone who cares. So, of course, you're going to get back all these wonderful things. Well, I, I appreciate that, but I, I, uh, it, it, it and everything about the response to the book has so far exceeded my yeah. uh, expectations. Uh, I, it, it's sort of unbelievable. It is. I mean, it, it's it's amazing. I I also know you went to uh, you know there's things in common. You went to Rochester School. I went to Ithaca College. Yeah, I know. We used to go to Ithaca to. Uh, you know, hope for the best with girls at the, at the various colleges there. And um, how come you didn't meet me? What happened? We could have been together. Anything's possible, but we, we, I don't think it would have worked out. Well, I wasn't a lesbian then, so it could have been. Who knows? God knows. I think it would have been a good job. All right. So you did the did the sixties, and, and then I I know one of the one of the challenges things that you had. And I I you know this this podcast, this interview, or this conversation. Uh, because of my book is Fuck Your Comfort Zone, I talk a lot about challenges in life and not just listing what you've done, but to out ourselves and how, and how life it can be really challenging. And one of the most challenging things for you had was that your son had leukemia. And so how did that, how did you get through that time? Well, um, I don't know. Um I'm not really sure that I did. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it's an indelible part of my life. It, and I completely agree with you that uh, without the challenges and pains and uh, stretching that life throws at you, the bean balls, uh, yeah. you know, you, your opportunities are, are limited. And, and, you know, clearly your book talks so much about uh, uh, overcoming obstacles but turning obstacles into opportunities and and it's such a clear uh and important message especially for artists and especially among artists for actors because you've got your imagination and you've got your experiences and you've got your training and you've got your body and you've got your voice and that's pretty much it and so yeah. if you if you bury the 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 uh, parts of your life and don't confront them don't embrace them then they aren't of then they're only a negative event um i i uh you're gonna make me cry <laughs> i want you to cry because it's part of human behavior right i appreciate yeah. that but um you know i um i uh my son sat on my lap with his legs wrapped around my belly and I stuck my belly out uh, uh, and pushed his spine into a curved thing so that the doctor could do a spinal tap to check wow. the fluid of his <laughs> spine. And so I, um, I mean, he took, he went through it much more than I did, but I went through it with him. Yes. And I, 
I became a sick four-year-old. Um, I, a lot of people probably could say that I've may, remained a sick four-year-old, but that's another subject. Um, but yeah, it, it was uh, horrifying and uh, terrifying. I'll never forget the day that the pediatrician sat my uh, ex-wife and I down and said, what do you know about leukemia? And of course, yeah. what we thought we knew was that it meant death. Yeah. And fortunately, it didn't. Yeah. Um, and a great deal of that uh, goes to the credit of my ex-wife, who literally got down on the floor with that young boy and um, willed him to live. But, you know, I'll tell you something, John, those are the beautiful memories, the painful ones. But, you know, we, we have I have exes, you have exes. And the beautiful stuff is that you can look at the relationship you had. I mean, I'm very close friends with my ex. Um, and you can say, what a beautiful moment of intimacy you shared. And the pain you feel right now as the tears are growing down your face is because of the love and the the investment and so so many people and I talk about this in my book are so afraid of investment. They're afraid yeah. to be intimate. They're afraid to be open. And what ends up happening is they live in what I call live in their comfort zone, and they don't get a chance to do what you're doing right now, sharing with me the truth. Right? And, yeah. and I always say, how can you create? How can you live a life of another person if you're not willing to look at your own truths? Which is what my well, book's about. Yeah, completely. And, and uh, you know, um, those experiences, uh, you know, in, in the new world, where the cancel culture, we aren't encouraging passion anymore. And you and I know that the, to the extent that we have allowed ourselves to be passionate, and, and I don't mean, you know, in a romantic loving situation, yes. obviously too, but to, uh, allow ourselves to bring the passion of our, that, you know, you, you said that I care about actors and that I care about the projects that I've been invested in. And I, and I do, and I did, but I, and I, I'm, I'm having to learn now a lesson that I don't want to learn, which is that somehow passion is no longer uh, a virtue. It's, yeah. Because it might lead you to say fuck to somebody that you're in the middle of a conflict with. And th and that's no longer, you know, then you're a bully or a, uh, and, you know, I'm sure you and I have both been accused of being uh, using our power to manipulate or get the result we're looking for. And and it's really just that we're that we care. Yeah. We want you to catch us. We want you to push back just as hard as we're pushing you. Yeah, I, that I think friction is going to really yeah. create creativity. I, I think that you know what I've learned, and I think it's so funny that so as our journey is so similar, is that as I wrote my book, also during COVID, I realized I looked at I took a look at myself, and I've learned that you know I'm a New York Jew, and I used to be. And it's still it's still challenging for me to not be not push my way through life. Now I'm slowing it down and saying things like and using the I message and saying things that 
uh, would you mind? I don't think I've ever used that line in my entire life. Would you mind doing this for me? Because I'm short, I'm short way of talking. And so I'm yeah. now very aware that you can have passion and you also can learn to be a better communicator. One of the lines you have in your book that I love, and I want to make sure I say this to you, uh, to everybody, because I have so many things I wrote about your book. And I love this. You said, I'll quote you. One of my responsibility is to be a human being myself. I mean, and and that says it all, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. To embrace yourself, your strengths and your weaknesses, your sorrows and your joys, your triumphs and your failures. They're all there's no such thing as a negative experience or a negative emotion. Everything that happens is risk for the mill. Uh, especially if you're milling human stories, which we have been doing for, uh, it's now going to be 2,500 years between the two of us. <laughs> I know. It keeps going on. Uh, oh, well, let me get to uh, some of the things I wanted to talk about because I want to get to your career. And I'm finding it, first of all, I love your book, everybody. Uh, everybody should read Right for the Role. I think that if they buy right for the role and fuck your comfort zone, their lives are going to be perfect. I mean, nothing else that they need in life, quite honestly, it covers it all. But I do, I do want to say that, um, I, Oh, I just lost my, hold on. I just lost my little ear thing here. I want to say that I want to start with I me. Mean, you know, everybody has somebody in their lives that changed their lives or I call them lifelines. You are John Wells. Yes. And I had Mary Wilson, who unfortunately died two years ago. For those people who don't know Mary Wilson, shoot, you should. She was one of the Supremes. And I think it's ironic, once again, in things we have in common, that China Beach, which you did, it was my, I just love China Beach. In 1988, the song was Reflections of, and that's it. And that's the Supreme. So how can we begin anything in this world without you and I having even that in common? And I just loved uh, China Beach. And I, I tried to watch it last night. And I can't get it on Amazon anymore. So I'm going to have to listen to the DJ, I mean, the discs, you know, because mm -hmm. I can't find it. But I, my favorite my favorite thing about it is that it was about a, a war that you and I were unfortunately privy to, um, Vietnam. My boyfriend, when I was a junior in college, I was dating this guy who was four the war and I was against the war. I was burning the draft cards and he's a year older. He was going, he went to war and a year later he went and he died in Vietnam. And I took oh. my son, Michael to when he was going to, you know, he, Michael's 33 now, which is insane, but he, um, <laughs> my, my son, my son who had leukemia is, uh, in, in, I, I'm not even sure he was born in 76. So, uh, he, he must be 46. Oh. Well, yeah, 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 because mine's 89. So insane. So I went to see, went and took him to, he was going to, he got into American. He didn't go to American, but I went to, um, to, to Washington, D.C. and saw the, the wall. And oh there God. was the wall. And there was his name, Jeff Tigner, my boyfriend's name. And so China Beach, it, it's so moving. Tell me about the experience of that. Because it, 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 there were so many wonderful stories that were connected to the times. Yeah. I, uh, first of all, just at, at a certain point, at, towards the very end of China Beach, we went to Washington to shoot uh, a scene with Dana at the wall. 
And uh, I found names. By the way, for those of you who are under 100, um, the wall is the Vietnam Wall. Um, it's, the, it's the memorial on the mall. Um, it's, the, I believe, the most recent of the memorials, or at least yeah. at a certain time it was new. And all of the names of the dead, Americans, are etched into this beautiful sculptural thing. Uh, and that episode, I believe, ended with uh, Dana Delaney as McMurphy um, uh, putting a piece of paper over a particular name and uh, rubbing a pencil across it. Yeah. As so many uh, relatives of, of, of um, victims did. Uh, you know, China Beach was the beginning. Uh, if I was in the mob, I would say that's where I made my bones. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, Phyllis Huffman, who was uh, uh, a tough, uh, tiny, strong, smart, passionate Irish woman. And I had two major relationships in my life, and they were both with Irish women so I, I have a propensity there um <laughs> phyllis came into my office uh, all five foot two of her and dropped a giant manuscript on my desk and said read this and <laughs> get back to me and uh i read it and it, it was china beach written by bill Broyles, who's gone on to do some fantastic work and the late john sacred young who um is was among the most talented and complicated and difficult people I've ever known in my life. I loved it with all my heart, and he wasn't always nice, um, but he was always um, passionate as hell and fantastic. And I read this script, and I, I honestly, I had, I've been a, a reader my whole life. I had never read anything that clobbered me. Oh, yes. And and it was often described as a woman's locker room in the middle of a man's world. Mm. And and it, 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 um, you know it was the war from the point of view of women who were there because they cared about those boys ten thousand yes. miles away from home. And one of the things I first learned from John Sacred Young was that the average age in World War II for an American soldier was upwards of 27. And the average age of a GI in Vietnam was just over 19. Unbelievable. Horrible. You, who you were at 19 and who you became at 27. Yeah. It was, a, it was terrible. Yeah, it was they a terrible children. war. And children, and I also remember reading in your book, and of course I remember these times, and for those people that obviously are younger, I remember when I was an actress for a few days, I remember uh, how it was That's like. another thing we have in common, Margie, we were both bad actors. I know. <laughs> well, actually, I got to be, the, I was almost the daughter of Maud. During that time, I was pretty good because I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. It was when I worried about it later, you know. Yeah. But anyway, I um, I do remember. Uh, you t you know, the, the times and you mentioned it, you're sitting on the floor with all of these pictures surrounding you. And that's how you 
you figured it all out during those years. That must have been so insane, but in a way, kind of hands on. Yeah, exactly. That was ER that you're referencing. Actually. Oh yes, ER. Uh, with when when my uh, then uh, a colleague Kevin Scott uh, would yes. stand in the hallway and he'd say, "Okay, there's a nurse. She's African American. She's in her forties. Um, she's warm and loving." And I would have a bunch of pictures surrounding me on the floor, and I'd pick up. Yvette Freeman, who ended up playing that part, and several others, and he would clip them together and set them up for appointments for the next day. And we just, we had so much damn fun. Then I, after we picked up the five or six pictures for that role, we'd uh, go through a pile of pictures of actors we love and put them back in the spaces that had been emptied. It, it was, we actually created our own mainframe on the floor in Building 140. What a wonderful thing. I want to get to ER and I want to ask one thing, tell you one thing before. What I loved also in, in when you're talking about um when you're talking about China Beach was two things. First, first of all, that Diane Keaton was the direct was a director of China Beach was unbelievable. What was that oh experience gosh. like? That means oh. she's so <laughs> well, it, what it was, was that it was, like? It was unbelievable. For one thing, you know, uh for a a, a Jewish boy who loved uh, uh, the the work of the of Woody Allen and, and yeah. sort of I mean I, I don't think I'm quite as unattractive as he is and I certainly haven't had a as controversial a life as he has but uh, I worshipped him and I also was yeah. jealous as hell of all of the beautiful shiksas that he got to have <laughs> relationships with Diane Keaton maybe paramount among them but uh, <laughs> I, that, I think the story you're referencing is that there was a young uh, Vietnamese American girl who was reading for a, a part of a bar girl, uh, which was the polite way of saying prostitute. Um, <laughs> and after the first time she did the scene, uh, she, Diane walked up to her and put her arms around her and whispered to her. And I didn't know what the hell she was doing. And uh, it was a little trepidatious. Uh, and I should have been because what she had said was, uh, I'll stop you, but go over to John and uh, unbutton his shirt and unbuckle his belt and uh, keep going until I say cut. And um, I think both that young actress and I were about as uncomfortable as two people could possibly be. Uh, <laughs> and, and Diane thought it was the funniest damn thing she uh, could imagine. Many years later, at a party, Diane walked over to me, and I was at a, uh, I, I was on a date after my marriage ended with a lovely woman, and uh, Diane walked over and said, "Who's the blonde, Levy?" <laughs> Another shiksa. <laughs> um, no doubt. It, you know, I, I met her recently at, when I had my book party signing party, and uh, I met her, and um, she was so sweet and so warm and just so, I mean, I was just blown over by it because she is definitely one of my all time loves. And another thing also I want to say to you is that there was a, a slice of life. I call them slice of life versus scenes. Cause that's what they are to me. But uh, that Dana was did with, I knew Mark Heldenberger because our children went to school together at crossroads. And I uh -huh. think it's hysterical that she went to hit her and then actually, unfortunately um, connected. <laughs> 
<laughs> that's what you said, connected the punch. Um, that was hysterical. So let's talk about ER because we've got so many things to talk about. I'm going to just give my uh, audience a few um, things about it. 15 seasons, won 375 industri- industry awards. Wow. You won an Emmy in 1997 for Outstanding Cast Series, which you totally deserved. And I love that you said in ER that you said when you accepted the award, you said, quote, the greatest show I've ever had a chance to work on with my best friends in the business. And if that isn't what all of us would love to do, right? And also, I think close to my heart, because I was involved in it, was uh, I was involved in, I think I probably was there when you got it, uh, a GLAD, the, the GLAD Media Award for the Gay and Lesbian yeah. Community, which is something else. So I wanted to get to one thing, because I've got so many things, and that was George Clooney being perfect for the show. I was interviewed recently uh, because of my book um, because I worked with Brad Pitt and Brad Pitt. They wanted to know about the it factor with Brad Pitt. So I described that. So I'm curious to know what the it factor was for you with George Clooney. Well, uh, George has, again, we go back to that word charisma. And Margie, remind me when when we're done with my answering this question, I'd like to go back to the quote you just did about my working on a great script with my, my best friends in show business. Of course. Um, George has enormous confidence and uh, rightly so. I would love to be uh, at closing time at a bar with his looks and his charisma and his confidence once in my life. No, not anymore, but I would have liked that. (laughs) (laughs) but he also has great humility uh, and and a, a wonderful, uh, you know, one of my, you have Margie-isms, I, I have Johnny-isms. Um, <laughs> one of mine is uh, take your work seriously, but don't take yourself seriously. Right. And, and George embodies that completely. Also, he's generous. He, he knew the names of every assistant on the, casting floor in building 140 at Warner Brothers in those days. And he would pop by and say, hey, hello, how are you? Good to see you. How's your, you know, is your kid in fourth grade yet? Or, you know, I mean, he he's that kind of, uh, yeah, that kind of a guy. Not to mention that he's slyly gorgeous and funny and a man's man in a, you know, world where, where, uh, a lot of men's men learn to apologize for it, and he never did. Yeah. Um, and and his, uh, you know, his leadership in the cast of ER uh, was extraordinary. The two of them, he and and, and Anthony yeah. Edward Tony, they both had. Uh, they, they took that cast by the scruff of the neck and taught them how to be uh, stars and still be humble. And um, I think those are the the, the uh, qualities that made George such a luminescent creature. Obviously, you know, in film and television, the characters need to be a little bit more fabulous than the rest of us. Yeah. And so <laughs> the, the ones yeah. that are blessed with that fabulousness uh, have a leg up. <laughs> yeah, I, I was saying, you know, with, with uh, Brad, when I worked with him in Thelma and Louise, 
uh, and I was working with Michael Easton at the same time. I talk about Michael Easton had a dark quality, but was what made it when I saw Brad, I knew right away that he had this it factor charisma because his playful child was very available to him. His twinkle yeah. in his eye was very available to him. And that's kind of similar in the fact that with George. Let's go back to your question. I mean, the thing you com- commented back, because it is the greatest show I've ever had a chance to work on. When I started writing this, my book with, with the wonderful Trudy Roth, who w- w- helped me in a million ways. Uh, but w- one of the things that I said to her at the beginning was, you know, I know I have stories and I know my career has been, you know, w- w- has had ridiculous success that I've been able to participate in. But I don't know what I don't know is what the book's about, you know, what the through line is. And we discovered uh, through her diligent work uh, and her fantastically warm humanness that forced me to be vulnerable and tell uh, the harder stories than the easy ones. We discovered that the book is really about my need to be part of a team, to be part of a collaboration, to be part of a family, Um, probably something to do with the fractured nature of my family growing up. Um, And that that the the title of my book is obviously a casting pun. Uh, Every actor wants to be right for the role. But what happened for me in my career, and 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 again in the writing of of the book, is that I discovered that I found something, a role that I was right for, and that that mm-hmm. is really our legitimate, urgent life's work, is to find your place, to find yeah. an opportunity where you can collaborate with others and enhance their opportunity to be excellent and enhance your opportunity to be excellent. I, I so much agree with that. To me, it's all about community. And that's what, you know, that it, we could go on for at least 10 hours about how we agree with that. The community of like my actors every Monday and every Wednesday, I have some of the most talented people you'd ever imagine. And they have been on zoom for three years and it's been the best experience because they have each other and they help each other. And they're there. You're not alone and you're supporting each other. And it's all about that. And I have 10 teachers that teach for me and we're all involved in the opportunity to help people, not just make money, but help people become better, which helps us be better. There's no question about it. Uh, You know, one of the things I I watched it last night because I I, I was so much into this interview with you, this conversation with you, and I decided to watch the the ER season six, episode 22 with um, Noah, Noah Wiley and Eric LaSalle. Um, and it, the reason why it was so important for me to, to bring this up to you is because you basically what it's about is that Carter is abusing the painkillers and he and um, Eric comes over after they've had this argument out that he runs outside and Eric gives him this incredible you call it brotherly hug and uh then you mentioned that's not just acting that's something beyond and then after that what you didn't mention is they were sitting silently on the bus together which was so powerful and i always tell my actors and this is what i wanted to bring up that the silence and the behavior are way more interesting 
than the words and that actors, when they're nervous, they can't wait to speak. Can you talk about yeah. that? Oh, absolutely. I, I you know, I, 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 a Johnnyism. Uh, I, I want you to accentuate the ancient art of listening, and also the ancient art of just being with the other character. Um, you know, obviously the the words are important, but the close-ups in silence uh, are so telling, and such an opportunity to uh, and behavior are uh, such an opportunity to. Um, explore the depths uh, uh, and and force the actor to only work from their connection to their thoughts and feelings because there's nothing to do that you know they, they uh, talking is kind of easy but it's also a little distracting from your connection silence forces you to think and feel which is, after all, the stuff that we're making these human stories out of. And, and you know, on ER, one of the things that John Wells did so brilliantly was to create community. Yeah. And, and, and so the, the actors had not only the fictional relationships to draw on, but they had real relationships to draw on and eric and, and and noah's relationship which was so filled with eric's uh, uh, leadership and sometimes abusive leadership of the young john carter uh, that 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 moment that you're you know referencing had all of that in it it had eric asking for uh, for, for for forgiveness yeah. for the tough way he treated him and also mm-hmm. saying to to Noah's character John um, it it may have been hard but it made you the man you are yeah it, it was it was beautiful um, just beautiful did you know when 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 Noah walked in that this was the the right guy for this because it's I mean because I want to say that he what I love about him what he's able to bring into it is what I talk about. And that is that there is vulnerability there is within all of this. And we we care about this guy because of what he brought into it. Yeah, absolutely, Margie. He represents the eyes and ears of us. He yeah. takes us into the ER. Yeah. Uh, and, and uh, you know, that's a, a great piece of writing. But it's, uh, uh, I, I have told this story before, but I'm going to tell it again because I think fantastic. Uh, I argue with no with Noah's agent at the time, a, a wonderful gal uh, who had great taste, and she kept saying, "I've got the guy for you. I've got the guy for you." And I kept saying, "Great, bring him in. I'll read him." She kept saying, "No, he's got to go in for the producers and the director right away." And I kept saying, "I don't know who the hell he is. He's never done a goddamn thing that anybody's ever seen." <laughs> I no, yes, no. We went back and forth. Finally, she caught me on a day when I guess I was tired. And I said, to quote Margie Haber, fuck it. <laughs> I, I had uh, my assistant set up Noah to come in to read. And I think there were two or three scenes for Dr. Carter to read. And in those days, I always went out into the hallway to greet the actor. 
and make sure that they hadn't vomited on the furniture or something and to try to help be you know confident and present and focused and 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 relaxed all at the same time and uh noah said to me i said hey noah nice to meet you he said hi nice thank you john i'm happy to be here um uh, he said look I, you know i'm happy to do the scenes that you've underlined for us to do for this part but i'd like to do something else as well and i said really um what, what did you have in mind and he said well you know there's that moment in the pilot when uh, Dr. Carter tries to take blood from a real person's arm for the first time. And uh, I've been practicing on a football and a watermelon, and <laughs> I think I can do it. And I'd like to do that scene because I just think it's uh, emblematic of what how little I know. And I was like, okay, fine. So I sat in the chair that's meant for the actor Noah took a big rubber band out of his pocket, wrapped it around my bicep, and took a retractable pencil out of his other pocket and uh, proceeded to try and fail and try and fail to find a vein. And it happened that that day was the one day that Michael Crichton was in auditions in my room, along with Rod Holcomb, who directed it, and John Wells. And Michael, being the only doctor in the room, literally at six feet 10 fell off the couch laughing and <laughs> it was <clears throat> you know one of the things i always say to actors is don't have a good idea uh, you know play the scene but noah had a good idea so if you're gonna have a good idea make damn sure it's a very good idea yeah yeah that's absolutely hysterical well i tell people you know it, you don't have to dot the every I and cross every T. I, though I'm a big believer in saying the words that are written, but it's Me the too. it's your it's the you know the, the behavior and if and I say if you fully own the thing, you have to own it so so specifically that it makes sense that it's not an idea or a trick to get you to notice them. And I think what he did, he owned the he owned the fear. I mean, it, he, listen, I watched that by the way. I watched the failure. I, he owned the yeah. fear, he owned the failure, and as a result, yeah. we saw that he really understood the essence of yes. the character, which is, holy shit, I'm way over my head. Yes. I've, I've done medical school. I know I know how to do this, but my hand is shaking, and I can't find a goddamn thing. I, I, and that, with the irony of that, that John, is I, wa I also watched the first episode. I'm really prepared myself for you today because I had so many things I wanted to do. I've never been this prepared. <laughs> I just had so many things I wanted to do with you. And I watched it and I said, this is a thing that actors don't understand. That's almost I, I think I do a thing called do the do's, which means instead of rehearsing, 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 live in the unknown and explore it on a today. I'm going to step in the life of the person. You know, today, you know, you 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 work on the lines, you you create the thing, but then you spend 15 minutes a day living in the life so that you're not just coming in and doing an audition. I first of all hate the word audition. I I think it's scary. I think it's oh, an opportunity to live a life. That's it. Just another opportunity to live a life. And I know you say I, the same another thing. Another place where you and I completely agree. Oh. Actors who think of auditions uh, as uh the gateway to a job are missing the point. Yeah, it's an opportunity to do the thing you love, act, exactly. Exactly. or live in yeah. the life. 
you know. Yeah, and 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 that's the thing. So we, we believe me, uh, reading your book, I think I thought maybe you studied with me or something. I just cracks me up because you have so much of the which I which is why I love about you is that you are more of a creative mind oriented person than a technical mind oriented person. And you create, and that's how I am. I teach creative mind, a lot of acting. I have a lot of unfortunate actors that remember, I've got 10 teachers. So I've got thousands of actors that come to us ruined by acting coaches. I don't like acting classes personally. I think most acting classes ruin you because they're so technically driven to get the, you know, I say to actors, opportunity to live a life. You're not going to get the job. You're too old. You're too young. You're too fat. You're too skinny. You're too black. You're too white. You're too, what reasons? You have an opportunity to live a life tomorrow, right? Margie, that's the funniest thing I've ever heard because I used to do a joke that was the casting director's rap song. Too fat, too skinny, too tall, too short, too white, too black. <laughs> well, that was the rap, and you've just sung it to me. I'm telling you, we're, we're, the, we're the same. I mean, it's a crack up. That's why I'm, uh, I have so much to, to talk to you about because I, I know – uh, I know there's so much that we have to speak about now. And no, it's it, also interesting thing that happened to me when I was reading about this stuff is that uh, when um, who was it? When Julianne came, um, Julianne at Markellis came to you, uh, uh, and she was wonderful. She was originally supposed to be just a guest star. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. and then. Cool. And then she became a series regular. Well, I have a student named Denim Richards who's on Yellowstone, which is, I love that series, Yellowstone. And this, he was telling me, um, seven, ironically, seven years ago, he was homeless. And this I say to anybody who's listening to all of you that are happen to be listening to John to this podcast. Denim was homeless seven years ago. In his car, he only had enough money, $25, I think it was. He wanted to study with me. He didn't have the money. So he went and bought my book. And he said, one day, I'm going to have enough money to study with Margie Haber. And now he's a series regular. And now he's in my class. Even though he's in, by the way, Yellowstone, he's in my class. Here's what I want to say. He was a guest star for two years, and they made him into a series regular. How does that does that happen often? And how does that happen? You know, well, you know, it happens. Like, it's a there's a great tradition which I think started on Hill Street Blues mm. because uh, Charlie Hayde was the guest star in the pilot, and so was his partner, whose name I'm sadly forgetting because we have known each other for 3,500 years. Yeah, right. Um, uh, in any event, they were both supposed to die in the pilot, as was Juliana. In the pilot of ER, yes, she committed suicide when her yes. relationship with Clooney, um, and and ironically enough, her relationship with Clooney was what saved the character's life because our audience in the testing was like, ooh 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 ooh, <laughs> we want more of them. Yeah, and and uh, and that same thing happened with Hayde, uh, and they became series regulars on Hill on Hill Street, and Juliana, you know, and her her incredibly prestigious career if if john wells hadn't realized how important to the success the impending success of er george and juliana's relationship or or doug and and carol's relationship was um you know god i mean probably it would have happened for juliana uh, uh, some other way 
but but this is the way it happened and and it was uh, spectacular and i mean i think that's just also you know one of the things that uh, is so great about john wells is that he watches dailies <clears throat> with an eye towards the future yeah. and they, yeah. two characters might pass in the hallway and he sees something and then the next episode he he writes <clears throat> something that that'll capitalize on on that uh, friction or that uh, whatever whatever it is you know um i have just want to say i have so many of my students who are on er listen to the thing i as i read your book mershka hardike was um was uh, was my student when i worked with her on before law and order emily rose who i love emily and she you know i worked with her for years and one of my favorite people of all times who uh studied with me for many years and i Worked with him on the audition, and he booked it. Was Vondi Curtis Hall, who I just yeah. love. This man, Chicago, he was uh, Chicago Hope, and he was in ER. How did he manage to do both at the same time? Well, he wasn't a regular on on my show, and in fact, he's one of the very few people who did uh, uh, two different parts on on ER. The second one was, uh, and we would never be allowed to do it now because of the whole world of authenticity. But he was playing a trans man who was in, in a uh, relationship, not a sexual relationship, but who, who was in a bunch of scenes with Noah. And uh, he eventually threw himself off the top of the building of the hospital. Um, uh, Vanti also was in his wife's fantastic Casey. film, yeah. Casey Lemons. Uh, yep. He played this uh, southern preacher who helped a slave escape. Uh, uh, in in her wonderful film, whose title, oh. of course, is he he he, he was he he's uh, one of my favorite people. He during the time he was on Chicago Hope, which obviously hundreds of years ago, he would come into my class and sit in the back just so he could get absorbed more. That's how people. I love when people re don't realize that just because you're a series regular doesn't mean you can't continue learning. But here's you know when you bring that into the this conversation about that he was not a trans and he was living that life. What's interesting is one of my students who I adored and I worked with her on the audition for you was Laura Innes. Oh, wow. Uh-huh. And Laura Innes, um, of course, for those people who don't know, didn't watch it, was um, not disabled. And yet she, I mean, she also started as a guest star, didn't she? That's correct. Because she was a regular on Louis Anderson's show. And I called the producer, Diane English, and asked for permission to use Laura, and uh, she granted me permission. I knew her because she was doing Murphy Brown right next to me when I was doing China yeah. Beach, so and uh, she was generous and gracious. And then when we wanted to have Laura come back, she was a little less generous and gracious. And then, lo and behold, the cards fell in my lap because the Louis Anderson show got canceled, and Laura became a regular. But you're absolutely right. In today's world, yeah, authenticity. We, we would have had to cut the backstory of her having had polio as a child and now walking with a cane, because she didn't and wouldn't. But of course, on crime shows, you don't have to kill somebody to play a killer. So I don't know. Well, it's an interesting time. To, you know, this will. Be, I can't spend any, another hour on it, but it is an interesting conversation about. Listen, I'm gay. Uh, um, if I, I'm, but I'm also capable of living a, a, a heterosexual life. I'm capable of living a lot of lives, and I feel like 
I, I do. I think you think the same way. I do prefer to, th- to think that I could hire someone who is gay or whatever. But I also believe what is it, what is our, our our business is all about imagination. Absolutely. You know, uh, yeah, I don't I completely agree with you again. Uh, you know, I, I just think that uh, authenticity can add great richness under certain circumstances. And 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 I believe in it. And and, yeah. and when you can go into an authentic community to find an authentic yeah. person to play the part, and they have the skills, great. That's right. But ultimately, the story should rule. And yeah. um, and and what's best for the story is up in the air. Stay tuned for part two of my conversation with John Levy on my next podcast. I hope today's podcast inspires you to stay open, let go of control, be present, and above all, be kind to yourself. If you'd like to explore more of my philosophy in the studio, go to MargieHaber.com. And if you want to purchase a copy of my book, Book Your Comfort Zone is available on Amazon. Stay tuned for our next episode.